Here we go, a little bit early today, so that means I get to go longer. November the 8th, 2015, lecture discussion number 219 on the book of Romans and such. And before we resume uh, to our seemingly endless adventure into the meanings of salt, remember Lot's wife, the pillar of salt, and all of that, as well as the recently added implications of consciousness. Well, that's not really uh, recently added, added, is it? Is it more like revisited again, which is re-revisited, I guess. Anyway, before we head back to where we left off last week, a couple of things came in the mail. So a little housekeeping here. Let me find it. I, I have something from Kimball. Uh, Kimball is from, let me see, where is Kimball from? He says to us, I'm from Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Yeah, that's somebody for Marie to cheer for. He writes, try to find that on Google Earth. I don't know why God God has blessed me by letting me come across your sermons, but they have blessed me greatly. My question is, do you have a list of books or commentaries you would recommend? Do you have a book to help me in my studies? Thank you. Yes, I do, uh, Kimball. I don't really know for sure where you're at. I would just say to you that um, I recommend that people start out. All I tell all ladies this, but it's to start out with Ada Ruth Habersham's study of the types, and that applies to everybody. She's a brilliant woman, a great theologian, and uh, I recommend her almost every time because that's a good place to begin. And I also think that uh, M.R. DeHaan's Portraits of Christ in Genesis is very valuable as a starting point for people that uh, have not been familiar with these kinds of topics. After that, uh, I would move you to Arnold Fruchtenbaum's um, Footsteps of the Messiah. So those are usually the three that I try to get people to go with first. Uh, Then it becomes a lot more difficult from there. Eventually, you end up with J.H. Kurtz and... uh, Heisenberg and gentlemen of that ilk, as well as uh, some who uh, think Arthur Custance, for example, some who think uh, differently, completely. So uh, thank you for writing, Kimball. We're uh, glad you're out there. We don't know where Harrodsburg, Kentucky is, except for Marie. And I'm going to hand this now to Supper Dave, and he will get a hold of you. The the other letter I got this week actually came through Supper Dave. Uh, uh, made me laugh just just reading it. It starts out like this: uh, Supper Dave. My name is Scott. I am Bill the Fast's son-in-law. We are starting a Bible study of Pastor Steve's Genesis series that that you apparently put together. I have a couple of questions. The very first sermon, uh, number zero zero zero. Does not seem to be Genesis. <laughs> I added that a little bit. Seems to be Proverbs 6, with only a reference to Genesis 15. The second sermon, which is also numbered 000, <laughs> starts out Genesis 2 and 3. So I'm wondering if you're giving me the wrong number 1 in the copy I received, which should be Genesis 1. Also, sermons 5 and 9 seem to be missing. <laughs> oh, this is this is great. We are meeting Tuesday nights and just had our first uh, tonight. Everyone loves Pastor Steve's sermon, whether it was out of order or not, and we are looking forward to next week. I'm just hoping I have all the sermons as I should. 
to help you decipher rather, I do have I do have the wrong first zero 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 sermon for Genesis. It was a nursing case study Steve referred to as Gilligan's Island. And then going into the seven things God hates. Proverbs six, I have no Genesis one. Dave writes back to him. Uh, I don't have time to, to go what Dave wrote, but Scott writes back to Dave. Dear Dave, first of all, thank you for the quick reply. Secondly, I hope your health is better. Dave, as most of you know out there in the Internet world, uh, uh, has uh, struggled a little bit recently because he's old. Bill shared with us that one of the difficulties in obtaining this series from you in the first place is that you were in the hospital for a while. Thank you for persevering. I did read the letter you added. In fact, I reread it <laughs> to the whole group before we hit the play button on the first sermon. Thank you for adding that as... It set the stage perfectly. We are not new to Steve's rambling nature. <laughs> that was fantastic, and he's absolutely right. Uh, we have been fans since Big Bonnie and Bill the Fast first year with your church. My only frustration with his teaching, actually, well, there is actually one more, but it's, it's my ignorance that makes it so, and that is his rapid-fire listing of scriptures without even reading a one-sentence quote of that scripture as a reference. So I just need to know my Bible better. Steve's master plan in the first place. Anyway, your letter helped convey this nature better than I could have. He goes on to talk about, he uh, has a group here, and, uh, and they uh, listen to the sermons, and they're all going back, and there's eight or ten of them. Yeah, let me read this part. It cannot be explained except one way, an attack. Never mind. Let me, well, it didn't detour God's plan. All nine attendees are eager to return next week, so much so that one couple who previously said that they had other commitments on Tuesdays were so were only able to come just this one first time or changing those commitments. So that's fantastic. Uh, Scott uh, is uh, another one of these groups out here, out there. I think there's about a half a dozen now, and it's always exciting to hear from those groups. And that is for you other groups. Uh, write us. Let us know you're out there. Uh, it's it's a joy to know that that is happening. So okay, where was I? I want to get that out of the way. I have to get medicine now. I was asked last week by Daniel if I could make some time for Luke 19, the parable of the ten pounds. Now, he didn't quite ask it that way. But he did. And it's unfinished business, as you know. Those of you who are here recently in the last year or so know that I didn't go into Luke 19, 18, 19 intentionally just because I don't like to overwhelm you. And sometimes it just gets to a place where I got to go on. Uh, whether I have finished anything or not. But I thought, okay, this is, this is something I probably should go back unfinished, as I said, and try to fit, fit it back in. And I also thought it would feather nicely into our coming discussion on the grain offering, or the salt, if you will. The grain offering is the bloodless offering, does not speak of death, ties into salt. And so I also believed by doing this, I'm going to tamp down the dissent. Many of you say, how come you always answer the Internet question, people, and you don't take requests from the locals? Why only the Internet? And, of course, the vast Internet audience complains with the inverse. How come you only talk to the locals? And So that means that I'm doing a perfect job. 
and such is my burden. Now, Daniel specifically asked about the rich tax collector in the sycamore tree, <coughs> wanting the Old Testament compliment. He phrased it this way, why is the rich tax collector in the sycamore tree, and what is the Old Testament compliment of it, or words to that effect? That is exactly the question you asked, by the way. New Testament questions. If you want to know why Zacchaeus is in the sycamore tree, there's an Old Testament answer for it, or an Old Testament resolution. In Luke 19, God, this is God, he's on the move. Whenever God is on the move through Israel, what do you think of? And by the way, he's on the move, on the move and he is veiled, if you will, in humanity. God on the move in Israel. And this time he is moving in Jericho. Has he ever been moving around Jericho veiled before? Absolutely he has. So God is moving through Jericho. And the rich tax collector has climbed a tree. And he's a short tax collector. The Bible tells us that he's short. Now why would he be short? Why can't we have a tall tax collector? But we don't. We have a short one that's rich. And he's climbed a tree. A short tax collector who wanted to see God. I mean, he could have stayed in the crowd, but he doesn't. He wants to make sure he sees. Wanted to see God as God passed through Jericho. So ask, why did the rich short tax collector want to see God as God passed through Jericho? Obviously, Jesus, who is the creator of all things which by definition includes time, time is a thing, knows, because he's omniscient, he knows that Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, if you will, is in the tree. He knows that Zacchaeus is in the tree. Just as he knew Bartimaeus was blind and sitting on the road as he's wandering around Jericho. So I have Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, two guys connected forever in the New Testament and by forever, I mean forever. And actually, by the way, there's two blind men. Only Bartimaeus is identified. So I got two blind men and a short, rich tax collector. And they are stuck together now. But I, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself as usual. Most of you, having endured the Matthew 24-25 lectures on the parables, of the faithful, wise servant and the evil servant. You remember those lectures? I hope you do. And after them came the ten virgins, right? So here we go again. So I have ten pounds or ten minas and I have ten virgins. So the parable of the faithful, wise servant and the evil servant. Then the ten virgins followed by the parables of the what? Or the parable of the what? The talents, that's right. You're going to remember 24 and 25 of Matthew, and you're going to recognize these very similar elements in Luke 19, but they're not the same. That's what makes Luke 19 so cool. But you also will go back into Jeremiah 13, the same thing again, because in Jeremiah 13 is the parables of the sash or the handkerchief and the, or the linen handkerchief or the linen sash depending on how you want to define any of those. Most people will say linen sash, but it, it could be a number of things. Nonetheless, also we have the parable there of the, of the dashed bottles, 
or the all, we'll get to that in just a second. Dashed bottles would be the best way to say it. So I have Jeremiah 13, Luke 19, Matthew 24 and 25. And I hopefully you remember at least the two of those, the Jeremiah 13 and the Matthew 24 and 25. The obvious question would be, why did Christ, why did the Lord God of creation attach the parable of the ten pounds or the ten minas to Zacchaeus climbing a sycamore tree? That's the question. You see, if you try to pull out just Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree without making sure you understand the parable that comes behind him and Bartimaeus that's in front of him and the rich ruler that's also in front of him and the woman and the judge. If you try to pull him out, the rich short guy in the sycamore tree, you'll never understand why he's there and you won't understand the purposes of those uh, parables. Exactly the same as Matthew 24 and 25. You've got to put it all together. Trying to figure out the talents without the ten virgins is a waste of your time. As you know, that's all. We went over that, went over it, and we're still there, aren't we now? So why did God attach the parable of the ten pounds or the ten minus to Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree? And, and, and then how are the ten pounds connected to the ten virgins and the talents? Because they are. What is the same and what is different about this? How does the rich young ruler, I say not just the ruler, I say rich young Pharisee. This is a rich young church ruler here. Compared to Zacchaeus, people say all the time, do you assume that everybody who runs a church is rich? Yes, I do. Rare exception otherwise. Richest people in this city are religious people. It's always been that way. Where is this... In the Old Testament is what Daniel asked. Besides the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, covered, veiled, moving in the midst of Israel. Besides that, as you know, the, the covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant being carried through while it's covered is a great symbol of Christ. Christ is typified by the Ark of the Covenant. That's the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant, is to typify. It's a symbol of Christ. One of the great symbols of Christ, it is gold over wood. It is deity over humanity. It has the Ten Commandments safely inside him. Right? It has, the, has all kinds of great symbols of Christ inside of it. Okay, let's rush through this thing now, Daniel's question. You can boo Daniel if you want. But it does fit together nicely, as I said, eventually to the grain offering or the bloodless offering or the salt offering, whichever one you wish. Keep in mind the order as always. As I, well, let me put the order on the board and then I'll read it. Why do I rattle off scriptures without really referring to them? It's one of the great complaints of Amanda, as you know. Why do I do it? Primarily, let's be uh, let's be realistic here. The internet audience outnumbers us by a thousand to one now. It's easily that. Um, you guys are sitting here; you can do the math pretty fast. But that's what's happened. And so, in order to make sure, I know those people will will go back and go back and push the button and go back and write it down. They tell me they do it. So I want to make sure that they understand how I got there. 
And I absolutely intend for them to look it up themselves. That's how it works. It has to go from being me to you. Whoops, now I have to bend over. This is me bending over. It works well. I went to real short note since I started early. Uh, I had trouble hitting a softball first time in my life. I was great in practice. I kill the ball in practice. I hit one this year, maybe 400 foot. So even though I am an old crippled man now that can't bend over, uh, I can still produce that swing. Unfortunately, in the games, I was not as successful. I did okay. I mean, I, my, my standards are pretty high. And I went to the eye doctor. And guess what I found out? I go regularly to the eye doctor every 10 years. And I went go to the same lady. She's at Walmart. Um, <laughs> so, so I want to go. Never mind. She's outstanding, by the way. But I go in there for my uh, every decade eye exam, and I find out that I have a cataract in my left eye. And I am left eye dominant. And I said, you know, I had trouble hitting a softball. She said, oh, yeah. <laughs> she went on to explain why I can't see anything. Because my left eye, that's the one I'm depending on. That's the one that, you know, the left eye is closest to the pitcher. So I'm in this position, that front shoulder closed, this eye, the right eye, I can't see anything. Which means I can't see anything. So I have many changes now coming. I, I'm anxious to go driving at night more now. Please ride with me. What's that old joke about I want to go like my grandfather when I die with a smile on his face and not like the people screaming in the car? Where am I? Here we are. You thought I forgot where I was. Didn't you, Scott's group down there? Are they in Oregon? Is that where they are? Washington? Okay, when they get to this place, they'll realize that, yes, I'm still rambling. I'm going to put this on the board in order so you can kind of see it before we read it. So we're going to start really at Luke 18. To understand Luke 19 and the guy in the sycamore tree, we start at Luke 18, um, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. They're famous in Scripture, right? And they're contrasted. The tax collector is saying, have mercy on me. And the Pharisee is saying, hey, I'm better than him. I'm saved and he's not, is what the Pharisee is saying. And based on what does he say that? A couple of prayers, really. But ultimately, the Pharisee is saying that the tax collector is unsafe, unsaved because I am better than him. And I am saved because I am better than him. And you can figure out why the Pharisee thinks he's saved and why the Pharisee is convinced the tax collector is unsaved. Now you should immediately see that if I have a Pharisee and a tax collector, the next time I have a tax collector, is there a relationship between Zacchaeus and a sycamore tree being a tax collector and the tax collector that is saying have... Mercy on me, just a couple of paragraphs before. Probably. If i got a Pharisee here, do I have Pharisees everywhere? Probably. So start with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then we have the rich young ruler. And I say, as immediately, he, he's rich and he's young. And he probably is a Pharisee. 
So, so far that's our, that's our order. I make the case that the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is a Pharisee. I think it's obvious by what he says from the bowels of Sheol. Now, let me read this uh, about the rich young Pharisee a little bit. Luke 18, 24 through 25. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Christ is saying this. God is saying this. How hard is it for rich people to be saved? How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You're all familiar with this, right? It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved, essentially, is what Christ is saying. So the response from the people when he says that is, who can be saved then? Because we can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And God says to them, the things which are impossible for men, and I have this wonderful side-by-side, impossible-possible, that which is impossible for men. What is impossible for men? It's impossible for a man to save himself. Go back now to the Pharisee and the tax collector. It is possible for God. And after that, I have the two blind men. There's a song, right? Two blind men, two blind... No, there's not. I have the two blind men, Jericho, which is Bartimaeus. Pay attention to Jericho. And then, uh, and then I have the short, rich tax collector. So once again, tax collector, tax collector. This time he's identified as short and rich, and he's in a sycamore tree. But he is still a tax collector. What's the obvious question that people ask right here? They always ask, who is this Pharisee? Do we know him? They also ask, who is this tax collector? Is the tax collector with the Pharisee the same as the tax collector in the tree? Are they the same guy? And then finally, the parable of the ten pounds. That is essentially your order to Daniel's question. Sometimes you see it. Listen, always have your old King James when you are reading things. Because the old King James will give you key pieces of information that these other translations simply don't do. Um, I've left out a couple of things uh, really fast. Christ talks about um, what the Jews will do. And it says in, in the New King James, it says the Jews will kill him. Meaning the Jews will kill Christ. They, will, they can't kill Christ. He's God. The old King James is a great example. It doesn't say kill him. It says put him to death. One is a process. One is a trial. The other one is the ability. See, the misleading element is very important. Anyway, I, I know I'm reading the New King James because it's just, uh, what's the word? It's a good place to start for people, but at the very least, get yourself, if you're a good student of Scripture, get a parallel Bible that has the old King James in it. It'll save you a lot of bad questions. So we're going to start now. That's the order, but we're not going to do all of that. Obviously, we don't have time uh, because we have to get to Little Bonnie Zombies. And 
rushing we will now do. So let's go to Luke 19, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through the minas if we can get that far. How am I doing? I'm doing good. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, something amazing is coming next. Behold, there was a man, Zacchaeus, or Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. So he's not just short, he's not just rich, he's chief. So he's the chief. He's the E9 of the tax collectors. And he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Now, my translation says, and saw him. Some translations do not have, and saw him. But Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, hurry, in other words, and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Obvious question. Did Christ know he's in the sycamore tree? Duh, of course he did. Why does Christ have to stay at this guy's house? I must stay at your house. Why? Hurry. Well, you gotta hurry. So you have this, the hurriedness of it, and I must stay. Why would God say, I must stay at this man's house? What makes God do that or say that? What's God's purpose for staying at his house? So Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him, received God joyfully. And that word, by the way, when translated, when you work at it, you'll find that it has a connotation, a connection to salvation. But when they saw, they all, so in other words, the crowd that was there that saw Christ stop and say, Zacchaeus, come down now. I'm going to stay, I must stay at your house. When they all, the crowd, saw that, they murmured and complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. This is a horrible sinner. Takes you back now to the other tax collector, right? It's almost the same thing was said there. The Pharisee and the other tax collector, Pharisee says, This guy is a sinner. There's no possibility He is going to be saved. I am better than him. And by being better than him, I will be saved. So my plan of salvation is to be better than that guy. That's his doctrine. Obviously, that's ridiculous, isn't it? But notice the sinfulness. Interestingly enough, the tax collector that was there, who stood afar off, by the way, and begged, please, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. As I've said many times, those are the last words of my father. He'd say it over and over and over again. So the crowd goes, 
Christ is going to the house of a short chief. By the way, I figured he's a little heavy. That way I can kind of have sympathy and commiseration with him. So I got a short. He's got, that way I just have something in common with him. Not particularly short, but I am uh, big boned, we've been saying. Yeah, for a one-eyed fat man. So I have a short, chief, rich, tax, hopefully fat guy in a tree. That's what I got. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to, to the Lord, Behold! That's where your Bible was going to say, Look! And you're going to miss that behold. Now something incredible is coming next. First something incredible happened because there's a man named Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree. That's incredible. If you haven't figured out why that's incredible, because it is, it's profoundly incredible, uh, then you know, okay, i got work to do. But here it comes again. Now we have the beholds are going to tie together. So if you can't figure out the first behold, you can go to the second behold. Put the beholds together. Behold, Lord, I have, I give half of my goods to the poor. Back we are now to Psalm 41. Behold, Lord, I give all of my goods to the poor, and I have taken, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation, that's his name, right, has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save all that which is lost. Okay, now we have the ten pounds. I've got to go fast now. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. So who is he talking to now? He's talking to the complainers. Who are the complainers almost every time? When Christ says a parable, who is he talking to almost 100% of the time? Pharisees. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Who's the they in that sentence? Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants. How many virgins I got? Delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man, this to reign over us. Man is not in the text. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, so obviously he went somewhere to get the kingdom, right? He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your minor mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You have... you." Also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, there, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in the handkerchief. What do you think he did with the handkerchief? By the way, Jeremiah 13. 
And he buried it now. Same as the talents, right? There we are again. Same thing. Not really. Same thing, but different. For I feared you because you are a hard man. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly the same, isn't it? You are evil. He's calling God evil to his face. You collect what you did not deposit. In other words, you're a liar. You reap what you did not sow. In other words, you're a thief. You're evil. And he said to him, that's the lie of Satan, right? And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, wicked servant. You knew that I was a hard man. In other words, he's using the words against them. You're saying that I am a hard man? He's proving to him that that has nothing to do with the man's statement here. This is, a, this is the lie of Satan. This man is, a, is an antichrist figure. As you know, this is Matthew 4. Collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he's already got ten minas. I added the already part. For I say to you, that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Who are his enemies? These guys, right? And Okay, so hopefully you saw the handkerchief, linen, sash, the every bottle shall be filled with wine, Jeremiah 13, 12. Let me read that to you. They will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? This is, this is very important to these parables of Jeremiah 13. Do the Jews say, the Pharisees say to Christ, do we not, in Jeremiah 13, 12, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? That's what they say back to him. One of the great wicked statements in all of Scripture. The issue here is those in Jeremiah's parables, this particular parable, the parable of the broken bottles or the dashed bottles, Though they loathe and hate their Creator, they are absolutely certain. We know. There is no possibility that there will be an unfilled bottle. Every bottle will be filled with wine. What they're talking about is the Jews. Every Jew will be what? Every Jew will be saved. That's what they're saying. Every bottle will be filled with wine. Even though they hate him, and they hate the people that they were sent to take the truth to, they are certain that, irrespective of that, every bottle will be filled with wine. Why are they so sure? That becomes the key question here. They are sure. They know. Rephrase it. God will save all mankind. Now I'm going to extrapolate it all out because you hear it again outside of the Jewish people now, of course. God will save all men. None will be condemned. Essentially, 
every bottle will be filled with wine is equal to no judgment of sin. Sin will never be ended. It will prevail. And again, that, of course, is the lie of Satan. It's also, by the way, contradicted by knowing. They know. Knowing contradicts every bottle will be filled with wine. The fact that you can know makes every bottle filled with wine untrue, which we're going to get to later. That's called, again, as you know, little Bonnie zombies. How ironic that those who hate Christ know he will fill every bottle with wine. I knew you to be evil, he says to God. That's why you're going to fill every bottle with wine. Matthew 25, 24. They know, they're convinced that God is evil. And again, the ability to know collides with universalism. They should know that. That was a joke. It was hilarious. I spent hours. Fortunately, Daniel laughed first, way from the back row. But yes, you should know that by knowing, universalism can't be true. Little Bonnie zombies. But we'll go back to Zacchaeus here. Zacchaeus is a behold. Zacchaeus is also a camel. And he knows he's a camel. He's a very rich man. He's a camel in a tree. I got a camel climbing a tree. A short, hopefully fat camel. Chief of all the camels. He's up in a tree. By the way, the chief tax collector is not just very rich. How many, how many tax collectors do you think he's got under him? How much money goes through the tax collectors? He's also, he's very powerful. And he's feared. If he decides that you as a Jew are withholding taxes, who does he send to your door? What will they do to you? Who gets the tax money? How much of the tax money does Zacchaeus and his little group of tax collectors skim off the top? This is a very rich, very powerful, corrupt man who sends stone-cold killers after you if you don't pay your taxes. And they make an example of the tax, the people that don't pay so that nobody thinks about it. So a very very powerful, rich man, Zacchaeus, and a very hated man. And this short, hated man is running. He's on a dead sprint. Or if you will, the camel is running. And the camel is going to climb the tree. And I submit Zacchaeus must have known something. He knew something. 
because the obvious question is what has caused Zacchaeus to climb a tree so that he could see the antitype, which is the fulfillment of the type that is the Ark of the Covenant coming through Jericho. He wanted to see it. He wanted to see Christ. He was too short to stand there. He knew, I've got to see him and I've got to climb a tree to do it. So how is this this process, the anatomy of all of this? In other words, what is the cause for this effect? Rich, powerful men, wouldn't you agree, do not normally run ahead of crowds and climb sycamore trees. Rich, powerful men do what? They have protective groups around them. They're able to move the crowd however they want. They're able to do whatever they want. That's not what this guy's doing at all. He's out in the middle of the crowd, little short guy running for a tree. This is a man who is intent on seeing the Lord God of creation. What has caused Zacchaeus to respond this way to Christ? This tax collector eventually, uh, he says, as you know, as, as we just read, he's going to give his money to the poor. In fact, he probably already did it before he even saw Christ. He's got a lot of money. He's just giving it away. What's making him do that? That's verse 8, right? Is this something that Zacchaeus, you think this guy routinely gave half his money away to the poor every, every now and then? I don't think so. Is this a new sprung act? I think it is. Zacchaeus has changed. What happened? Is it on my list? I submit that Zacchaeus was moved recently. This is an additional development. This is behavior previously non-existent. He hasn't been this way. He's now this way. This is a changed man, completely changed, and he wants to see Christ. Again, something that Zacchaeus heard or witnessed has caused this man to repent. He's given away his money. He's climbing sycamore trees. And remember the details. This is a Jew. It says so. Son of Abraham. Today, salvation has come to this house. This house. This is a Jew. Also a son of Abraham, it said. Because he also, he's not just a tax collector. He's a son of Abraham tax collector. This is a Jew tax collector. And he knows something. He knows that he is unsaved. How does he know that? Because isn't every bottle filled with wine? Zacchaeus doesn't believe every bottle is filled with wine. He's running, climbing trees. That's a big wow. That's a behold. That's what the behold means. I have a Jewish man who's very rich, very powerful, and he knows he's not saved. That's incredible. That's a camel. That's the impossible made possible. Salvation himself 
the person who is named salvation, whose name is salvation, always fascinates me that people will name their children salvation. I always wondered if they knew what they were doing. Some people, for example, will name their sons Jesus, as you know, salvation. Some would name their sons Christopher, Christ, you know. Who does that kind of stuff? That's a joke that won't be funny when his mother listens to it next week. (laughs) That's why it's there. (laughs) Hi, Lori. How are you doing? (laughs) You should know everyone thought that was funny. (laughs) Anyway, salvation himself has come to Zacchaeus' house. I must stay at your house. This house. Your house, this house. And Zacchaeus comes to Christ and receives salvation with great joy because he knows he doesn't have it. And now he does. He knows he was in the impossible column. He's a camel. And now he's possible. He is a saved man. Zacchaeus does not think or believe that all of the bottles will be filled with wine. Zacchaeus has judged himself severely. He knows the Old Testament penalties for fraud, Leviticus 6.5, Numbers 5. And he understands fourfold restitution and when and why, Exodus 22. And he isn't paying any attention to those. He's exceeding them. He's declaring himself to be profoundly guilty, unworthy of salvation. Behold, I give my money to the poor. Why does he do it? Behold, I'm guilty. I deserve death. I deserve no mercy. That's his response. I understand my condition. And that is not just the response, should be the response of all men, but that is absolutely should have been the response of the nation of Israel. Instead, the religious order of Israel, the Pharisees hated Christ. We will not have him reign over us. And they would hide and bury the minas, the mina in a handkerchief. And they would teach that every bottle is filled. No need of salvation at all. And we're better than the Pharisees. Or I'm sorry, we're better than the Gentiles. We're saved and they're not. We pray. Hopefully, <clears throat> oh, just quickly, the reward is disproportionate. Didn't, didn't you just notice that to the work? I'm going to go out and take ten minas. I'm going to get another ten minas. Nowhere near the size of a talent, by the way. He says, because you were faithful in a very little. So you did very little. You're going to get what? Ten cities? I have this amazing reward for very little. Think of it this way. You showed up on the job site. You didn't even bring a shovel. And you took with your hand a little piece of dirt and put it over there. And for that, you get the house. You did very little here. But I'm going to give you ten cities. The reward is so disproportionate to the task. And hopefully that struck you as significant. The dividend is great. It's extraordinary. Our part is a very little. 
Zacchaeus now runs ahead. He's desperate to see Christ. Where in the Old Testament, and there's many places this story is in the Old Testament, but uh, as you will endeavor, I'm sure, to go find them all, bring a lunch. Where in the Old Testament is the act of seeing Christ result in salvation? Where is that? Where do people climb trees and try to see Christ in order to save themselves in the Old Testament? Where is the Old Testament compliment? A very little, they do a very little thing and they get this great reward of salvation. They are able to see Christ lifted up and they get this little, with this little tiny act, They get this great, incredible eternity of life. A simple, mere act of seeing Christ ultimately returns everlasting life. A faithful act gives, and belief, this little belief. Where in the Old Testament is that? Lots of you are nodding your heads. That's right, that's right. The visitor from Indiana is right on board. How does that make you feel? Yes, imagine if poisonous snakes were everywhere. Would you climb a tree and see to live? Would you be so desperate to see Christ, the Christ, lifted up? A certain nobleman goes away to receive his kingdom. So a nobleman comes and he's going to go away. To receive his kingdom. So who's the nobleman that goes away? Let me explain it this way. A certain man comes and goes away to receive his kingdom. When he gets his kingdom, what is he now? He's a king. So first he goes or he comes and he's not a king. But then he will go away and he will return as the king. So who are we talking about now? It clearly is Christ, the first and second advent. And when he comes, what's he going to do? He's, there's an accounting, isn't there? He's coming as king and he's going to have an accounting. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And all those who hated him, all of his enemies, all those who said that the king could, is not going to reign over them, the enemies of the king, they're brought before him and slain before him. What's that sound like? Revelation 19.20, right? Matthew. The bottles are dashed there. Not every bottle is filled with wine. Zacchaeus figured that out. Okay. I recognize that I sped through that. I did it on purpose. Hopefully you have enough information now to proceed successfully on your own. Start with the contrast in the doctrine of the rich young Pharisee and the rich short tax collector. Look at this guy. Why wasn't he saved? He's rich. Tax collector's rich. How come the tax collector got saved and the rich young ruler did not, or Pharisee did not? The little thing was missing. So now now we're back to little Bonnie's zombies and the bloodless salt grain offering, which is kind of sort of where we left off last week. Remember, salt has to be included in the bloodless grain offering or the meal offering. Don't call it the meat offering. I don't believe that's appropriate. It's grain or meal. Salt has to be there. We we said last week salt doesn't burn. Now you know that Lot's wife 
buried in salt. Lot's wife did not burn in Sodom. You might remember, unless you intentionally forgot, and who could blame you for that, that the last week I diverted into the gift of knowing. Knowing. Knowing is a theme of Scripture. You should know that. (laughs) No one else will laugh at my joke. I'll repeat it so that I can laugh at it myself. But knowing is one of the great themes of Scripture. We know. Uh, That's very important. And we should not take knowing. It's a gift. And I I diverted into it last week. And not to be taken for granted. Knowing. Though that's what we do. Knowing is an aspect of consciousness. Knowing is being conscious of Conscious of. Not merely just registration of information. It's consciousness of. We should must and we must resolve the origin of consciousness. The implications of being able, being endowed with knowing. It's something God gave us. I'm going to tell you that right out. Not everybody believes that. So it's, uh, that's why we're doing uh, hints. That's why we're doing little Bonnie zombies. Because Little Bonnie wanted to know about zombies, and so I'm calling them Little Bonnie zombies because it kind of rhymed and I liked it. And we're, uh, the, the Little Bonnie zombies are portrayed not as knowing, but they're portrayed as unknowing. So I have that which is unknowing and that which is knowing, the conflict. The Bonistic uh, people say that we really don't know anything. We have no knowing, we have no free will, we have nothing. We're just... Um, we're just waiting to be revealed as particle, reduced to particle and particle-based entities. Uh, the dualist says, no, we know things. And zombies, as they're portrayed today, and there's philosophical jo- zombies is where this all comes from, by the way. The philosophers of Locke and Hobbes and these guys from hundreds of years, George Berkeley, hundreds of years ago, thought about knowing. How is there people that don't know? Um, Supper Day was talking to me this week about Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross has pre-atomoid human, human beings that he says were unknowing human beings. So I had, that's how he tries to reconcile monistic evolutionary philosophy with scripture. So there is a great debate about, in philosophy, about knowing and unknowing. And hundreds of years ago, they thought, Wow, this knowing things, knowing about things is very interesting. How is it going to be explained? And so they began philosophically to imagine human beings that don't know. That just simply go through existence if they, ha- they don't have existence. But they go through their short life or short physical um, status. Just merely res- registration or just merely registering things. And zombies are depicted that way. And the difference between mere registration of an event and the knowledge of the event, knowing the event, is amazing. And that's a summary of where we were. So let's attempt to add some more foundational elements, more concrete, if you will. Um, Cowbell, if you'd like that. As you know, the physicalist insists that physics is complete. That's what they say. Physics is complete. What I mean by that is they will assert that everything ultimately will be determined to be physical. So it'll be a physical, everything has a physical piece. We may have things that we can't quite yet put into 
physical pieces, but eventually uh, that will happen because physics is complete. Consciousness, knowing of, however, resists location within the physical constructs. Consciousness has no place in the physical realm. This is called the problem of the mind or the problem of consciousness, as you know. And it does not have an explanation. There is no explanation of consciousness, of knowing. No one has one. This is called the explanatory gap. Can't be explained. That's the term that's utilized by those who debate these sorts of things. Explanatory gap. There's said to be a gap awaiting Explanation. We can't define knowing. We cannot put consciousness in a physical place. But we will, sooner or later, they say. That's the gap, awaiting explanation. The monists are certain that, as soon, that very soon they're going to explain with physical means the nature and the origin of consciousness. The why do we know of things and how did we come to know of things questions. The dualists, of course, say consciousness is not located in the physical reality. That's why you're having so much trouble giving it a physical location, because it's not physical. It's not the, it is not in the physical reality. Consciousness is not made of physical stuff, because that's what they say. Knowing, when you know something, that's really physical. It's made out of physical stuff. We say no. Consciousness is not made out of physical stuff. It's made out of spiritual stuff. Physics, therefore, is not complete. There are things that are outside physics, or outside physicalness. And this naturally takes the discussion of little Bonnie's zombies to Isaac Newton and gravity. This is where you can groan out loud. See, Isaac Newton understood that objects fall towards the center of the earth. And the cause was gravity. That's what he decided. To just state that, however, that gravity is the cause of objects falling towards the center of the earth, does not explain anything. The question still remains, how does this work? Why does it work this way? Why does gravity have this effect? What is the origins of gravity? What do the physicalists really love to do with gravity? They want to make it a physical force. Of some kind, they fried gravitons. Now they want to cause it a, a distortion of the space fabric. And Newton realized that simply saying gravity does this solves nothing. It is a description of an event. It is not an explanation. This is identical to the mind and the brain. We cannot find any means of connectivity between the physical processes of the brain and the consciousness of. In other words, we can't find anything, any of the physical process and assign it to consciousness or the knowing of the mind. Just because the brain and the mind have correlation, and they do, they have correlation. They act, they act in concert, if you will. They dance together, if that makes you understand it. Just because the brain and the mind dance, that does not imply any causation 
The physical brain does not cause mental properties. The famous thing, why do you wake up? Because you hear the noise? Does the noise make you wake up? What makes you wake up? Consider mental causation for a second. How does a thought, I have a thought, how does a thought make me move my holy, expo, low odor, dry erase uh, marker? How does a thought cause this movement? A decision, I make a decision to move this. I'm doing it now. It's amazing. I'm amazing. Watch me move the dry erase maker with just decisions. How does my decision making cause my arm to move, cause my hand to grab this thing and make these motions? I'm deciding all of that. I'm really good at this. I should get my own show. I'm making choices. It's me, myself. I make decisions. I choose and those mental events result in physical uh, physical motions. To repeat, the mana says there is only physical stuff. But the, but the mana simultaneously concedes that the mind processes cause physical motion. Note or notice that the vocabulary that the monist is using is dualistic. To explain human motion, he uses dualistic language. He's saying that mental processes cause physical motion. But that's dualistic language. So he has to describe what's going on using language that is not physical. He is saying that physics is not complete when he does it. But he still does it. You see, physical stuff is never, ever about anything. Knowing is about. This isn't about, this dry erase marker isn't about anything. It's just a dry erase marker. It doesn't have any aboutness. For example, perception, love, ideas, knowing, memories, intentions, all of those are mental properties. And all of those are always about something. About. Physical properties have no about. There are things out there that have about. Mental properties always are about. Always. Physical properties are never about. Mental properties, therefore, are the cause. There is mental causation. That's where we will head next week. George Berkeley and perception. Things, there must be a mental property to be about. To know. So who knows? Let's put it this way. Who's omniscient? Who knows all things? That's why he describes himself as knowing all things. As the musicians struggle from their deep sleep. What woke them up? Was it a, a mental property or a physical act that woke them up? Who, why does he say, you, 
I know all things. Why does Peter say to Christ, you know all things? Because knowing is so important. And next week we will figure out why knowing can only come from God. Let's rise and be dismissed.